listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what is new and innovative in education. I'm Mary. And I'm Eric. And this week, Mary and I kicked Jessica and Caroline out of the podcast studio to talk about what we learned and what we shared about competency-based education at this year's iNACL Symposium. So Eric, as you know, at the iNACL Symposium in October, we published a landscape report on the state of competency-based education, often referred to as CBE. And the report was titled, Show What You Know, A Landscape Analysis of Competency-Based Education. That report was announced during Rosalind Ali's keynote and then discussed in a subsequent panel with a great group of education thought leaders and myself. Right. I heard that went super well and that iNACL was just a great event all around. I also listened to a conversation you had with Tom after the panel in which the two of you recapped the findings of the report and discussed some of the leading schools and districts that are personalizing learning and pacing. That is correct. Well, today I think we will be sharing portions of both the panel and your chat with Tom. If memory serves, the two of you did a great job of setting the stage for the report, so why don't we start with that? Thanks, Eric. We're live in this big echoey room at the iNACL Symposium talking about competency. We just released a, a great paper with our friends from XQ, but I I want to start. You're a mom of uh, three teenage boys. Yeah. So give us a couple examples of competency-based learning in real life. Yeah, there are a lot of them every day. Some of my favorite examples probably are in areas like music and how do you, we've got one of our sons is into music. And so whether he's learning piano or vocal strategies, it's really quite show what you know, sing what you know, move on when ready. Another example I can think of is um, even the engineering classes. Our kids are involved in Project Lead the Way and understanding and demonstrating different competencies there moving forward. Uh, I've done some karate along the way. Even an example of, Tom, you know I live in Minnesota, and we there's a lot of hockey in Minnesota. We came to Minnesota when one of our sons was seven years old, and it's sort of a rite of passage that when you turn two, you start lessons on skates, and then you move up with levels accordingly. So our oversized seven-year-old was learning to put on hockey skates with a bunch of two-year-olds, and then you know maybe progressed, but he was progressing to be with three-year-olds. Yeah. And um, so it's sort of an interesting example. Like a, if we talk about meeting different students' needs, and sometimes they look different shapes and sizes, and not just these are arbitrary ninth graders or two-year-olds or seven-year-olds. Yeah. They're grouped based on on what they're able to do. You've had kids recently get a driver's license? Yes, we have. Competency-based? That is definitely competency-based. You have a son interested in aviation? That's super competency-based. Amazing. To be able to, and and thank goodness that our pilots and anyone driving a vehicle go through a competency-based process. And one who's interested in medicine. And so you think of the residencies and demonstrated knowledge. Thank goodness that's (laughs) competency-based, That one too, yes. You you wouldn't want anybody operating in your brain that that hadn't demonstrated mastery before they moved on. Yep. Uh, So one of the the premise of this paper is that the world is moving towards competency. And and we went as far as saying it's inevitable because time is such a bad measure. It's just inadequate uh, way to communicate your capabilities. And so we see higher education and, and uh, companies all struggling to find better ways to capture uh, the growth in human capability mm-hmm. and signal that to, to people that care about it. And, and so we as K-12 educators are, uh, are, are in good company of trying to right. find better ways, not only to provoke deeper learning, but to, to measure it and then signal it. And yes. Our paper described how that shift is happening globally. You could talk about where where the uh, paper started. So 
in partnering with the XQ Institute, they were interested in learning more really as an internal process about competency-based education and this approach with a, a deep commitment to equity and how do we really know that the structures and systems that we have for our students are really built around ensuring individuals are learning and not just being passed along. I um, We think of too many stories of students who've maybe earned C's or D's. Well, if you uh, think about the level of mastery or understanding it might take to, to know about 65 or 70 percent of something, as Saul Khan says in his you know, right. House with No Foundation uh, video, that's just not enough. And so part of XQ's commitment and our commitment, our deep commitment to making sure that students really do emerge from school with the knowledge, skills and dispositions yeah. that they need to succeed. You know, I just had an interesting conversation here with um, a really thoughtful group of educators that in some respects that the system that we've built that focuses on grade level proficiency really forces teachers uh, to teach on grade level, despite the fact that a lot of kids have really big learning gaps. Right. And what we need is a system that really uh, recognizes those learning gaps and encourages us to, to make sure that there's a strong foundation before moving kids ahead. So we need a system that better uh, recognizes growth, not just proficiency at a particular grade level. Right. And I'd add to that, I think that the absolutely ensuring that all students um, learn, have the supports they need to learn, and also that students who are learning quickly for whatever reason are able to advance and go to something that's more engaging, more interesting, and at an appropriate level and challenge yeah. for them. And also for students who've been behind, that it's not this death sentence. I mean, that sounds awful to say it or, that way, but this like life sentence of how long is it going to take to make up the you know four years of math? And in addition to students who need more support, in addition to students who might need to accelerate, how about how do we help students accelerate so that they can um, get to the place where they want to be to meet their next goals? So I, th I think this is uh, such an important point. Uh, competency systems can produce more equity, but only if we're really intentional yeah. about making equity a goal. Because unless we drive more time into support uh, to students that need it, a, a competency system could actually be less equitable. It could mm -hmm. advantage students that are motivated and supported and historically mm -hmm. uh, well served. So we, we do need to keep equity um, at the forefront as we yeah. design these new systems. As you said, we need to keep equity at the center from the beginning, look at equity in everything. And so that by design, um, as we move to competency-based models, that's a focus and a commitment. So it sounds like equity is a core focus here. Did that come up in the panel? Yes, Eric, you're absolutely right. We believe equity is at the center of our work. And in fact, we led with equity by kicking off the panel, asking each of our panelists to express how they see the connection between equity and competency-based education. And they each shared some really powerful and personal stories. So just to know, our panel include Michelle Cahill of XQ, David Roof of Great Schools Partnership, Shatoya Ward, principal of Purdue Polytechnic High School, which is also an XQ school, and our very own Tom Vanderark. Michelle kicked us off speaking about her time in New York City. We had tens and tens of thousands of young people who were already 17 years old, and they didn't have enough credits to get to 10th grade. They had to graduate. So here comes the competency, right? They were running out of time. We could not do the regular high school, but we were bound and determined that they were going to get the same high school diploma. 
they were not going to get a local or a, a lower-level diploma. So what did we have to do? We had to think about what did you need to go on to post-secondary education. So I came to it out of equity. I came to it out of the amazing assets of young people and out of the amazing confidence and courage of so many educators to jump into this and create new schools that were going to bring uh, our students to these, these uh, high levels of learning. Now we'll hear from Shatoya. I learned a whole lot working with adults who have dropped out of high school. And a lot of times we think that it's because of they don't have the capacity. I want to aid these students because they have the capacity to learn um, in the time frame that we're talking about. I mean, four years, it's not a lot of time to aid our students in learning how to navigate this, this crazy, complex world with all these problems. And that's what we set up our students to do every day is to grow up and to combat these problems that we have in this world, and we expect them to have the capacity to um, find the solutions for them. And we're creating them, right? You know. Um, and so I wanted to be a part of the access and opportunity for our students to be able to navigate this world, to navigate their community and their success. And next, David shared his thoughts. And I would say today... Um, when I think about equity and why we are so, uh, competency, why we're so deeply committed to it, is it's really an equity agenda. Um, and it's, it is the only practice I know of that will actually deepen learning and lead to greater equity. Um, because I'm, I'm very much afraid when we talk about personalized learning, if we don't include competency in that, that will lead to inequitable results. I've seen it happen. It's, I've seen it in schools. But it's... Um, you know, in a nutshell, it is the only practice I know of that deepens learning and, and leads to equity across the board for all kids. And so I just really want to put a pin in David's final point. As you can see, we see equity at the heart of the work. With that as a foundation, we explored five key themes about competency-based education. And this included, one, model schools and networks, two, competency learning processes and tools, three, student learning supports, four, policy and advocacy, and five, teacher preparation and development. Mary, I know you and Tom talked about model schools and networks in your discussion. Why don't we listen to that and hear what some of the panelists had to say? Sounds great. So let's uh, take a quick spin through the, uh, some of the aspects of the paper. Uh, we, we looked in the paper at uh, the, some model schools and, um, and networks. Any noteworthy participants there? Tom, as we started the landscape analysis and looked at certain schools and districts that have been pointed to by many others, and Chugash, Alaska. Um, right. First place that I really saw right. it executed well yeah. right, in, in a bunch of small sort of one-room schoolhouses. Right. And Lindsay School District, I know, visited there and spoke with Lana Brown and understand the work that they're doing and their deep commitment to making sure that they're not teaching solely to state assessments, but to meaningful competencies and helping advance students where they are, not play the game of how do we get them ready for this test, which we know that we want students to be and we're not against. <laughs> you and I are certainly for, and so is XQ, students meeting high standards. But by design, how do we help students move along? So I think those are a couple of examples that we hear 
here over and over. I had the opportunity to, to visit a great school district that's you know serving a large comprehensive high school in Minnesota in Eastern Carver County, where they're doing um, competency-based practices across the board in middle school and elementary. So that was a fun one to see. And how about a couple of some examples from yeah, some of was, your visits? Uh, I was just in um, the Wilder School District, uh, a rural district in uh, west of Boise that is doing uh, great work K-12 uh, in western Colorado in Mesa County. Yeah. Great um, district there, District 51, yeah. that has a group of pilot schools that are really uh, showing the way. Yeah. Uh, so we're, we're starting to see examples around the country, but um, all of those examples show us that it's really hard. It, <laughs> yeah. it, it means that you have to get really clear about what kids need to know and be able to do. You have to redevelop an assessment system. You have to create new structures that allow kids to move fluidly, Mm -hmm. not just locked into age cohorts. Uh, You need a lot of support for teachers um, playing uh, new roles. Mm -hmm. You need new policies uh, for the school district and maybe a waiver from the state and Yes. Uh, so there's a lot of work to do, and it, that's why we don't have as many great examples as we'd like. Right, and as as we've talked about, it's this work is complex on all levels, pedagogically, technically, politically, and it's multidimensional, and it's really looking at the whole structure. This isn't like a new strategy of you know classroom instruction or something that you can apply in little segments. This is a whole new way of thinking. We truly are rethinking how our systems are structured, how learning is credentialed, and, um, and it's big work. And here's what the panel had to say on the topic. As we consider model schools and networks, Shatoya, we need to start with you. There's three key things that I want to talk about. One is time, um, two is outcomes, and the third one is feedback. And competency-based learning is about those three things, and you have to do that very well and very efficient for students. And that's what our school is essentially uh, surrounded is we spend time um, on complex problems and coming up with solutions for those complex problems. We spend time on um, mastering the uh, content of uh, standard-based competencies that will help them uh, with the feedback at the end of the cycle to get to the levels that they choose um, in self-agency that is best for the successful and what's next for them um, when they uh, go to the next cycle. And we spend a lot of time with, um, as I talked about this, social-emotional learning so that they're, a, they're able to navigate um, their lives and their community. A quick color commentary on Purdue. One thing that I, I'd super appreciate about it, one of the big risk factors as, as we move to competency is, is um, dumb checklists, that we reduce learning to a list of, a checklist learning, right? And it turns into dry, lifeless, low-level, compliance-oriented learning. So I love the fact that you guys really work hard at trying to find the sweet spot between learner interest, um, problems of practice in the industry, and and things related to the community. So you guys really think hard about things like global goals. You think hard about like NGSS standards and also who the human being is sitting in front of you and try to co-construct really rich, deep, complicated, extended challenges at that intersection and and then look for evidence of, of a set of competencies a, across that 
project. That's what the work looks like. So it's hard. It's complicated. There's not yet a very good tool set uh, to support it. But that's why we're really excited about this as a model in development. David Roof of Great Schools Partnership also had some great insights from the network perspective. Our network that, uh, that we support has got multiple levels. And so the New England Secondary School Consortium is an effort of the state education agencies of the six New England states. And so uh, leads from each of those states get together, look at their work, share best practices, um, challenge each other to move their work forward. And as a group, are really pushing the whole idea of equity and pushing the notion of uh, moving towards competency or proficiency or mastery, depending on which state you're in. Um, so I, I put that as kind of a backdrop that I think is crucially important to understand the work. And I'm sure a lot of you have heard about how there's been a, a hotbed in, the, in New England moving that forward. And it's been very deliberate that the folks have been doing that. Then uh, to get to the school level, there's, we have the League of Innovative Schools that has about 150 members in it across those six states. Um, it's interesting. Um, we deliberately, up until a year ago, and I look over and see David over here, did, um, we had Massachusetts schools that wanted to be in, but the SCA wasn't in. And so we said you couldn't be in the league because we feel you have to connect all those pieces that are there. Um, and that's a, that's a league of um, and a network of the willing. It's a coalition of the willing. So people look and say, I want to go in this direction. I want to be a part of that conversation. It is not a network of demonstration, although there are sites in there that demonstrate really great things. But our strategy there is to get everybody into the, into the big tent. And then one place I would look at in particular um, to, I, I think we can, we all hear some of these stories about schools. And I think a lot of you, if you are sitting there in a spot as I was as a teacher and saying, how can my school do that? Because I've got this and this and this that are in line there. And so I would point out Nokomis High School in Maine. Um, Nokomis High School has over the last 10 years been um, either the very bottom or next to the bottom in terms of per pupil funding that they've had. They have had um, turnover in staff because their pay is so low that they, once teachers get good, they actually get a job in a neighboring town and move on. I'm sure you've all seen that problem that's there. And yet, there is a core group of teachers, a core, the um, administrative team, and the community has really committed to this. And they're, they're all in. And so it's been a struggle. I mean, they've been at it six to eight years I think they would say um, we're making progress. They are their system is set up that they um, have clear graduation competencies for all kids. They have common assessments that they use. They share the work across teachers. They discuss that work. They look at um, the judgments they're making on that work that are there in order to ensure equity across the system. But it's been a it's been a long time and, and a tough road for them. Great stuff there from all of the panelists. Let's move on to the second key theme, competency learning processes and tools. Another category we looked at in the paper was learning tools, and we found that most learning management systems are designed for the schools we have, not the schools we need. And, and so they really, I would say, not only learning management systems, but most curriculum are mm -hmm. developed for age cohort-based schools. And so schools that want to move beyond that uh, don't have much to choose from, both in, right. in terms of tools or curriculum. I spoke with Alina Aleva earlier today and um, in her session, and we, we talked about that gap for high schools in particular, um, curriculum and learning processes. I know sometimes we don't even want to use the word curriculum anymore because it's really a set of experiences that are aligned with assessments and opportunities for students to demonstrate. But this gap for 
high school curriculum that is simultaneously engaging for students and also scaffolds the learning. So it's not, you know, a loosey-goosey, let's have something where students show us how amazing they are across the board. We still have to be really systematic about what standards and competencies and skills are they showing at any given time. And to do that, um, we definitely need some new curriculum assessment and learning experience tools. Let me let me mention a couple of promising partnerships that, that we've seen where yeah. where model schools are being developed in conjunction with tool sets. So one is our friends at Purdue Polytech in Indianapolis. They're working with a local uh, partner called Course Networking yeah. on a competency platform. Another one you mentioned, Lindsay. Uh, Lindsay and District 51, Mesa County, work with Empower Learning. Yeah. Um, and then our friends at Teton Science School work with Novair. So those are, uh, we think, promising examples of model schools and networks working um, with ed tech providers. And we would love to see more of those productive partnerships. It's amazing how much I want to just take a quick and we'll come back to this probably as we talk about teacher development. But but right now, the to to really do competency based in a productive way. It's a messy process. And so these tools, I think, can help with this whole concept of how do we support teachers doing amazing work and build capacity and and not increase burdens, but actually use the tools to try to reduce the burden while increasing the effectiveness. All right. Well, during the panel, we asked Shatoya Ward of Purdue Polytechnic to elaborate more on their processes and tools. And Michelle and Tom also had some valuable thoughts. So we use competencies like math competencies and science and science competencies as our backbone to our instructional model. But our major thing is the design thinking process. As I talked about, what we want our graduates to be able to do is to problem solve and come up with solutions to complex problems that are out in this world. Also to be able to navigate their world because I have a senior and he is getting ready to graduate and go to college. And everybody in this room how know how, <laughs> knows how complex it is to try to decide on what college that they're going to go to. And so um, and, and it was complex really for him to even decide on what his purpose is or what he's interested in or what his passion is. Um, and so um, our job is to make sure that our students have that that passion, that purpose and what they want to do and what change they want to make in this world. And so we utilize the design thinking process and we created our own with um, Purdue and um, researchers there that will help um, our students be able to navigate throughout this cycle um, to ideate. We have uh, six project cycles in a year that we uh, work with industry partners to help us. They say, hey, this is a major um, challenge that we have in in, um, in our industry. Um, and it, we make sure as educators that is along the competency base of um, the backbone of science and math, and then we have our students go at it. And what we do is we attach standards um, to have help them master as they are learning through the design thinking process and as they are coming up with solutions to what they deem as problems that they ideated from this big, large uh, challenge. And so the things that they're learning, um, what we call detailed standards or what they're mastering, they understand that they need to know that 
because it is a foundation to get them to the solution that they're working towards. So now it's not a matter of I'm just learning just to be learning. I don't know when I'm going to use it. Right. How many people have struggled in algebra and you always said, when am I going to use this in life? Right. <laughs> we actually take those algebra components and we say, OK, you use it when you do statistics. You use it when you talk about population. You use it when you talk about water source. You use it when you talk about finite math and how much sources are left in, in the in the country for a finite amount of people. And how are we going to do this without decimating the earth? There's there's big challenges out there and there are complex problems out there that we need them to solve when they when they get out there. And so we have to give them the strategies and help them navigate through solving those problems. So why do we need this for everyone, right? Uh, and I think that's the question that all XQ and XQ schools have been really grappling with in terms of the rapidity of change and the deep change in what's required to be, to flourish as an adult in this rapidly changing society. Uh, and one of when you when you're talking about it like from a research point of view like the the National Academy of Sciences study that came out 2 days ago on an update on how people learn it's about the golden ticket is transference right which is you learn one thing that you can apply in different contexts well you're actually unlearning that in just a set of courses that say, you know this. Some things like Shatoya, what you're doing at Purdue Polytech around next generation science standards, builds on some new things, content, concept, and practice, all inside the same standards. But at XQ, we tried to put these in five intersecting uh, new goals for graduates. I mean, new way of putting this. I'm sure many of you share these goals. But what is needed in the future? And these become the basis for competencies, like masters of all fundamental literacies, building the academic core, uh, critical readers, compelling writers, mathematical and numeric thinkers, data and visual um, thinkers. And then this holders of foundational knowledge are most controversial one for many innovators because it so feels like the old memorization. It's the opposite. It's essentially saying if you're building a competency, you're able to do maker work, STEM work. You're able to do civic engagement. There's learning that builds upon learning in there. So understanding culture, understanding history, being curious, which goes down to learning for life, so that it is not a, a a um, you know a little element or a little sharp piece of content, but how you keep building in integrated with being generous collaborators, and of course original thinkers. And one of the most important things there for kids today, for all of us, is sense makers dealing with conflicting information and how you understand that and collaborating. So all of our schools are striving toward that. And uh, I think the competence, the notion of competency-based education to this takes you into a different starting place. And one of the big challenges in all of our schools is how you map that to grades, how you map that to, to standards. And what we're hoping for, in particular, Iowa Big, Purdue, Crosstown, 
Brooklyn Lab. There are NW Washington leadership we heard from. They're right now doing that arrows going both ways. Like how can some good standards like NGSS help you define competencies? And how do you go the other way and being able to translate? The, in the paper, we've got a zippy chart that shows all the um, dimensions of competency. The whole paper's zippy. <laughs> <laughs> so well, I, I think assessment's an important topic that I, I want to uh, talk about for 60 seconds. Um, there, there's, I would say there's a, a lot of schools in New England that rely heavily on uh, teacher judgment as uh, teacher judgment around observed evidence, right, as the primary mechanism for competency. Then there's a number of charter management organizations that rely exclusively on uh, machine scored assessments. They might be adaptive assessments, um, but, but they're ex, uh, external, right? So our contention would be that we, we want a mixture of multiple forms of assessments to inform learning and to inform judgments about progress. So this is a problem of practice that we don't have very good interoperability. Some of you have been in sessions where we've talked about that today. And we don't have tools that easily combine multiple forms of uh, assessment so that we get a really rich uh, multiple assessment uh, informed picture of a, of a student's learning trajectory. And this is particularly true when, when you're trying to assess really complex projects and then be able to combine that with other forms of, uh, of assessment. Well, this seems like a good place as we share out portions of our inequal conversations on competency-based education to make a slight interruption to encourage you to check out our recent report, which Tom just mentioned, entitled Show What You Know, a Landscape Analysis of Competency-Based Education. It can be found at bit.ly slash cbeducation. Once again, that's bit.ly slash cbeducation. Thanks for bringing that up, Eric. I really do think that anybody who's made it this far into the podcast would also appreciate the report. That being said, moving on, this was part of our discussions where we really kind of dug into the challenging part of this work. And really, it's all challenging, and it's multifaceted on all levels. But we went on to discuss areas where the most significant barriers exist today. And those include student learning supports, policy and advocacy, and teacher preparation and support. First, we talked about student learning supports. Mary, uh, how are student supports uh, related to competency? That is a huge component. I think we can talk about that on multiple levels, but we can think about specifically, as we did earlier, with how do students advance based on mastery and what happens if they don't demonstrate competence right away? What are the supports to help to get them there, quote, academically or in that learning process? And I think the thing that we've often overlooked, but there's a lot of attention in the field now, are what are sort of the wraparound supports? And whether we talk about it as SEL, whether we talk about it as cognitive, you know, non-cognitive, metacognitive, however you want to think about it. But um, you and I have worked a lot around structures and systems that in like an advisory for high schools where there's someone who knows students by name and are helping them understand the process of who they are, where they're headed, and how they'll get there. And some combination of this personal advisor with an algorithm that helps make that role um, doable. And we know the importance is shown over and over again in research in terms of the strength of a positive relationship and students understanding that there's someone that cares about where they're headed and how, how to help them get there. So that, that we could probably do a whole series of podcasts on student learning supports, but I know we hear a lot about that. Is, is there anything else you'd want to add there? Well, as, 
as learning um, experiences become more complex and a, a student's day is a mixture of individual skill building and, and um, uh, skill level groups and project teams and extracurricular activities, as that day gets more complicated, it just feels more and more important to uh, ground the day uh, in an in a advisory relationship <laughs> where there's uh, a person that's helping a student make really thoughtful choices about what's next. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we know relationships matter more than anything when it comes to learning and advisory is an important place to, to ground good learning experiences. The panel also had some interesting things to say on the topic. I think one of the things we have to do is have this touch the ground, right? Touch the school, touch the young person. And one of the things the XQ schools are doing with our partner, Credo, at Stanford is developing a set. This is for the purposes of understanding what this looks like as what young people know and can do and how they make meaning, right? And it's where we're calling it small lowercase letters right now, student performance framework, but is a notion of what are the measures that are in a, in a set of integrated measures of development, socio-emotional learning, and academic cognitive demand and cognitive competencies that go through content, concept, and practice, right? And that still doesn't tell you how you're going to know it. You'd have, but at least it gives you a sense of, of, how, of, of what it would look like. And this is being co-developed by researchers and practitioners and school people, Shatoya and others. And I think that the really powerful dimension of that is it kind of lives over here. And then you have to say, what does it take to get to that and develop some design principles but essentially, it, it is really, particularly with adolescence, saying school, you can't do competency-based education without school design. You can't do just curriculum instruction. You have to have adolescents have transformative experiences, because that's what it takes to grow up and be able to flourish uh, today. I want to underscore the importance of uh, an advisory system. We, we think that is really the backbone of secondary education and really critical uh, if, if you're not just focusing on reading, writing, and math, but competency and social-emotional learning, lifelong learning, uh, those dimensions, you even though we don't have great measures in those, you need to have, uh, you need to be providing really good feedback uh, to kids every week, and that we think has to come in the form of, a, of an advisory conversation. Uh, and beginning to build a, a growth transcript uh, with a young person that helps them tell their story of expanded capabilities. And with is such an important word in that. Right. Right? That it's... The, you know, some of, the, some of the best schools that we've seen that we take people to, um, like DSISD and DSST in Denver and, um, and, the, and the Beacon Network, Adults are getting great feedback on shared values as well as the kids. So adults are getting the tough feedback of, are you living our values? And and then sharing feedback with students. So uh, uh, getting better at that as a, as getting getting and giving feedback on, on those competencies uh, as adults is key. I think it's really worth highlighting that phrase that Tom used, 
Advisory is the backbone of secondary education. Some good food for thought there. Agreed. Next, we went on to discuss policy and advocacy. Policy. Any, any promising developments there? What, what should states be, be doing to support competency ed? Yeah, lots of different options there. So I think that um, one thing I'll point out is to look at policy around competency-based education really in a larger context. And so on the one level, we can look at states, and, and I happen to live in one in Minnesota, we've got innovation zones, and I know that's common in a lot of different states, or waivers from seat time, and you can talk about some of the, the examples that we've seen in New England. Um, but I think in the larger context of how is policy currently structured for, in this case, for high school itself. And XQ also, they recently published the State Policymakers Guide and uh, with tips and, and more than tips, but really strategies to restructure, um, to look at policy and even rethink the high school credential itself. So I, I know I have uh, wondered why we live in to use the title of, of the report, in a show-what-you-know world, when right now we have a show-where-you-sat transcript, where it's an archive of what classes a student took, maybe which teacher they had, and what grade they got. And so I think we need to look at policies that allow flexibility, allow for innovation, um, but also to really rethink things as fundamental as a Carnegie unit and how do we change things that way. What else would you add in terms of policy and what you've seen and states that have been doing this. Yeah, it, it's super important time to uh, reconsider what students should know and be able to do. And and so we think states should uh, start that conversation uh, or encourage that conversation locally. Uh, we identified a, a couple states that have, have done that really well. Um, Virginia developed a, a new graduate profile, mm -hmm. uh, and it has proved to be a useful template for districts in their state. We, we visited Albemarle in, in Charlottesville recently, and they, they really appreciated the, the state's leadership and had used that framework to develop their own uh, student learning outcomes. Uh, South Carolina has a, a great uh, graduate profile. In Vermont, they have a list of seven transferable skills. So those are all good examples of, of reconsidering what students should know and be able to do. Competency Ed is not just about reading, writing, and math. It's about developing uh, well-rounded human beings that are successful not just in, in post-secondary but in careers and in, in their civic life. And a, a graduate profile should reflect that. Mm -hmm. So we know that this work is really hard. And I, I think of some states, like there have recently been some changes in Maine. Um, and and what would you say about that in terms of what we can learn and how we can continue to, to go down this pathway? We, we need uh, more great school models that um, make the work um, vivid and um, the successes um, more obvious. So it, it's a, an, an iterative problem of both we need uh, more schools, a problem of mm -hmm. practice, um, and we need thoughtful state uh, policy and, and advocates that stick with it. It's a, it's a marathon, not a, not a sprint. Right. This, this is a, a generational transition from time to learning. It, it's, um, it'll take us 20 years to get this right, not two years to get this right. right. So, Right. All part of the learning. During the panel... Michelle, David, and Tom had the following to say in response to an audience question about scaling competency-based education. One is designed for scale, right? So capturing the lessons of everything that everyone here and we have done in this policymaker guide, 
Uh, just since putting it out, we've had lots of calls from governor's offices. Uh, it suggests like running these kind of design competitions in your state, um, changing uh, teacher preparation, right? A range of these things. The hardest not to crack on this to, that I have experienced is redesigning comprehensive high schools. And when we talk about something like this, competency-based education, you cannot expect teachers to do it or personalized with 150 students on their roster, right? It is not the way that, that you can do this. So these kinds of lessons um, have to be, and, and it's, not, it's not a viral strategy, right? It's not as if you're going to see Purdue and then everybody's going to do that. It's generating exemplars that also then have a cultural dimension to how it gets communicated that builds demand for this and capturing the data on it and everything. But I think, and, and this is online, but it has links and everything, but the notion that we build strategies that have policy, that have new tools, that make it, the tools have to make it easier, make it reasonable for uh, places to do the kinds of things that innovators uh, will, will do. Yeah, we've done uh, a lot of work at the state level and state policy in trying to um, both promote and enable and allow this type of work to take place. Um, I think there is a little bit of a pattern there that um, in most places we've seen states start with a policy that enables it to take place to um, uh, that, that if you want to step out, you can do that. And then it moves a little bit into promoting it. And then we have a number of states where it's actually uh, moved to a requirement, a mandate stage that's there. Um, to be clear, we've had, we've had some pushback. Some of you may have heard of what happened in the state of Maine this last legislative session about pushback from the public about the mandate around graduation. Um, I would um, stay committed to that. And the biggest reason for me is uh, that I get a little worried. I think, Tom, going back to your point of doing it fast enough, is that we can hang around and do a little bit and a little bit and a little bit. Um, and kids have 13 years in high school and then they're done. Okay, And it, it seems a problem to me that if we can just wait around and hope that somebody will do that and here's an opportunity, that at some point I think we have a moral obligation to say there's a requirement to move in this direction. And it's not just okay that if you want to do this and if you happen to be fortunate enough to be a kid who's in a school or a school district where there's some brave and courageous leadership to do that, then you get a high-quality education. But if you're not, well, you know, it's 13 years, that's okay. Um, I, I have a real problem with that. I would be remiss not to add, simply saying, do it, damn it, is probably not going to be successful. Um, and so um, along, along with that policy strategy, has got to come a pretty cohesive um, and uh, thoughtful uh, process that actually supports schools that go in that way, provides them political cover, provides them um, cover with the parents, and you know things like um, getting colleges to understand this, getting colleges to buy in, all those things that, that we've done to do that. So uh, again, allow it, pressurize it, uh, require it, and put all those um, necessary um, strategies around the side in terms of professional development and thought to make it happen. Quick answer is work in networks. This, this stuff that we've talked about is super complicated. Out, you know, build an outcome framework, figure out how to assess it, then develop a learning model uh, likely to deliver on those competencies, then build an IT stack 
to support it and then create the adult on-ramps to help adults uh, successfully lead in that system. Those are four extraordinarily difficult things. We shouldn't assume that schools or even small districts are going to figure this out on their own. Uh, we need um, robust networks that share tools and outcome frameworks uh, to, to bring this to, to scale. And related to the idea of networks, Tom and Mary went on to discuss how best to prepare teachers for and support them in competency-based education environments. Any thoughts on teacher prep? What, what, what should we be doing there? I think teacher prep and teacher development. I think both are super important that uh, we have so many people who've taught. I think this is a, um, to, to answer your first question, I think in terms of teacher prep, to really find the models and examples and and equip people to work right. in the new system. And so that in you know best case scenario, people coming out of our teacher prep programs will be leaders in their own schools right away and will have a new way about doing business and that we've created a culture on the um, continuum there as we think about teacher professional learning in general to really take the time to say, these are all teachers who we are know are doing the best for kids as possible. And as we shift to a new system, what do we do to support that process and making sure that there's capacity, professional learning communities and, and real support and coaching and opportunities to grow along the way? The panel also made some important observations on this subject. I, I just want to note the notion of burden. Yes, it's hard. This is a change. But one of the hardest things we do is we blame teachers. And, and the, that blaming and shaming of teachers, um, when people, I mean, quite honestly, teachers are doing the best job they know how to do. It's not like they're kind of holding it back for the next day, which would be better. So I, I want to put that as, a, as a, a baseline caveat, that we have to trust and respect that teachers are working hard every day. And when they know better, they will do better. Um, well, and I just overheard a couple of teachers on the elevator this morning, and it just warmed my heart. Like, there was this, yeah, well, we're really doing our instruction and our assessment together. Like, the, I don't think the kids know always when we're doing one or the other, which is a great sign. So I think just picking up on this about teachers, competency-based education requires a level of sophistication in teaching that I think is about know, it's about do, and it's actually incredibly intellectually interesting, which is really good for, for people since this is a, you know, a, a learning profession. And I think um, uh, done well really uh, increases self-respect, right? Because you, you're getting a, a sense of what the uh, complexity of learning is. Um, so we build a culture of failing forward and recovery, and that's for everybody. Um, students and staff. Um, and uh, the most important thing is, since we are reinventing high school, uh, we are uh, demonstrating the design thinking process on a daily basis. And so what we are uh, experiencing, and then we are also facilitating um, with our students, um, we are in the thick of it just as the same as they are. And so when you talk about um, uh, recruiting and coaching uh, staff, uh, we are looking for something a little bit extra than the expertise of your content. Um, there's You look for the same qualities that you are trying to teach your students. And so like flexibility, um, things like um, relationship building, um, things like um, <laughs> um, you have to be um, okay with chaos. You have to be okay with failing. And we actually ask those questions like, 
Um, what do you, how do you define failure? Um, and these are part of, that's the part of our interview process um, because we're looking for the same qualities in the teacher as that, um, what, that we're teaching our students. Wow, what a powerful image from Shatoya on how a commitment to design thinking can really seep into every aspect of school design. Now, Mary, I know that we've covered maybe half of everything that you all discussed on competency-based education at INACL this year, but it really is about time for us to bring this podcast to an end. Are, are there any final words that you'd like to share? Well, there's still much to say and to learn about competency-based education, that's for sure. And we want to continue to invite practitioners and people in the field to join ongoing discussions across the nation. Our students need you and they need all of us to be part of this conversation. We believe there is global momentum behind the shift from marking time to real demonstrated competence, but we're still in really early phases. So from our perspective, we believe that the most important thing is to get people talking and thinking and working together around the shift to CBE, and especially around what needs to happen to ensure that we're doing what we can to guide change in an effective and an equitable way. For anybody interested in learning more, once again, our full report can be found at bit.ly slash CB education. And for those listeners who uh, really prefer the podcast experience, you can listen to episode 151 of the Getting Smart podcast, where Tom talks with Michael Fullen about how schools worldwide are redefining learning outcomes, or episode 158, where Tom and Lydia Dobbins, president and CEO of New Tech Network, discuss why and how schools should work together in networks. Both of those will provide pretty topically relevant uh discussions, but really we would encourage you to check out the full report at bit.ly slash cbeducation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Getting Smart Podcast. We hope you found it valuable, thought-provoking, and we welcome you to join the ongoing conversations at any conferences or with the networks and communities that you're a part of. This change is happening and we want to make sure that we have it happen in a way that's really good for students. So thank you. Thank you, Mary. I think that's a great ending note. Thanks again for listening. For the Getting Smart Podcast, I'm Eric. And I'm Mary. Signing off.